your Bibles are already open to Philippians. I invite you to turn over to Philippians chapter 4. So in our last sermon on Philippians, we finished by looking at the first verse of chapter 4. And I want to start right there this morning in that same verse. Okay, because this verse sets the stage for what we're going to talk about today. So look at Philippians 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus or in this way in the Lord, my beloved. Okay, that, that verse is a transitional verse in the letter. What I mean by that is it looks back to what finished the last chapter. Okay, that's where, if you look back at chapter 3 at the end, you, you might remember Paul challenges his friends to keep their eyes on the right kind of examples so that they won't fall away from Jesus. And the very last verses of chapter 3 is where Paul reminds us about our citizenship and where it truly lies. It wasn't in Philippi, and it is not in America either. Instead, Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then he says immediately after that, therefore, stand firm in the Lord. So the call to stand firm now is grounded and anchored in those truths about the future. Jesus is on the way. One day your faith will become sight. So stand firm in the Lord. But remember, I said this is a transitional verse in the letter. In other words, it it does look back to the end of the last chapter, but this verse also points forward to the text we're going to be in today, the next couple of verses. Okay, but before we look at those verses, I want you just to think again about that call from Paul to stand firm. Have you heard Paul say that before in this letter? Okay. Sarah just read it, okay, in chapter 1. I want you to think back to this. This was the first command in the letter. was, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Okay, so back in chapter 1, that was Paul's heart for the whole church, for them to stand firm as one and to move forward for the faith of the gospel. And now at the end of the letter... Paul comes back to the very same theme. This is his heart for the whole church, that they'll stand firm together in the Lord. And that command sets the stage for verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4. It sets the stage for something very unexpected in the letter. Okay, You see, what we have not been told until this point in the letter is that there was something going on inside this church that was a threat to this church standing together for the Lord. What was that? 
Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. That is what we didn't know. We didn't know from the rest of the letter that there was actually tension inside the church. Now, certainly, as you read this letter, on the whole, things were really good in the church in Philippi. Paul is very happy and very encouraged with this church. But here, near the end of the letter, what do we find out? There was tension within this great church between two women, specific women, Yodia and Syntyche. And by the way, what Paul does right there is unparalleled in his letters. I don't, I don't mean that he never talks about tension being in churches. He talks about that a lot. There was a lot of tension in different churches, and he often addresses it directly in his letters. Like you could say 1 Corinthians, like that's like the whole letter. That's like what he's, what he's doing. But what is unparalleled is that Paul never directly addresses two people by name like this in any of his letters. And we, and we need to remember that this letter was going to be read publicly to the whole church. Can you imagine what that would have been like? And what would it have been like for these ladies to have their names called out like this? What would it have been like for the person reading the letter? Because it wasn't Paul who read it, right? Or to just be there in the church that day and to hear this about two people that you know well. There is simply nothing like this in the rest of Paul's letters. And so I want to start by thinking through a couple introductory questions. Okay? Who were these women and what was the issue between them? And here's what we're going to have to admit up front, that we don't know everything that we want to know about this. You see, the details of the situation were almost certainly clearly known by all the people in the church. Because of that, Paul doesn't need to go into the details in the letter. But we don't know all the details, and so that puts us at a disadvantage of sorts. But having said that, I do want to say I think we can deduce, say, a few things about this situation. Okay, first, these two women were very important to the church and to Paul himself. We're going to see more of this as we go through the text, but clearly, for Paul to address them each by name in a letter to the whole church, they were very important, and that should not be surprising in light of the story of the church plant in Philippi, where women in Philippi were very significant to this church from the very beginning. If you can remember back to Acts chapter 16, which tells the story of how this church got started, Paul's first interactions in Philippi were with whom? It was at a place of prayer where a bunch of women were gathered together for prayer and worship. His first convert in Philippi, was a Gentile woman named Lydia, a wealthy Gentile woman who ended up becoming the host of the first church in Philippi. The second story in Acts chapter 16 is about the demon-possessed girl 
that Paul and Silas ministered to, who we hope at least became a follower of Jesus after they were able to cast out the demons from her. And as you read through the church planting stories in general in the book of Acts, it is very common for the gospel to take hold of important women, of many women within these Roman cities. And then to add to that, okay, if you read Paul's letters carefully and you pay close attention to the Christians that he mentions by name, you find again and again that Paul had great relationships with many women and that women played a very significant role in the advance of the gospel in the Roman world. So you think of the situation in Philippi. Could these two women have perhaps hosted house churches in Philippi like Lydia had done? Or could they have been great disciples like Priscilla? Or could they have been deacons, potentially, like Phoebe seems to have been in the church of Corinth? Any of those things seems possible. But what we can say for sure is that these two women were well-known, and they were very important to this church and to Paul himself. Okay, second, just big picture. Okay, the issue between them was significant and well-known to the church. Okay, we don't know exactly what it was, but it had to have been significant. Otherwise, I can't see how Paul would have brought it up in a letter that's going to be read in the public gathering. Okay? This wasn't a disagreement over the color of carpet. You know? okay? The disagreement was about something more significant. And also, the issue had to be well known in the church. Otherwise, I can't see how Paul wouldn't have shared something specific about it. I mean, think about it. If this was merely a private issue between the two of them that no one else in the church even knew about, it would have been very strange to be hearing this letter read and to hear about it for the first time. Third, this was not, apparently, a situation where one lady was clearly right and one lady was clearly wrong. You notice how Paul makes the very same appeal to both of these women. In fact, he actually uses the word twice. It's entreat in the ESV. He makes the exact same call to each lady. And in light of that, it's safe to say this was not a disagreement about a major doctrinal issue, for example, where you had one woman holding the right view and another holding the wrong view, or anything like that, really. The issue was important and well-known, but it was likely about something where faithful Christians could reasonably disagree. Perhaps they had different views about how their church should relate to the culture around them. There were lots of questions about this in the first century, like there continue to be today. Perhaps they had different views of the best way to advance the gospel or the best way to use the church's resources, or perhaps it was something more personal that had come between them. But regardless of what it was exactly, Paul does not view one woman as clearly in the right and one as clearly in the wrong. That is not what's going on in the text. Instead, he calls on each of them equally to unite together again in the Lord. Okay, and then the last thing, just big picture, okay, Paul saw this, this tension, as a barrier to the church being able to move forward for the advance of the gospel. That's why he brings it up. 
You remember, his vision is for this church to stand firm together as one, to be marching side by side, shoulder to shoulder for the advance of the gospel. And he thought that this tension threatened that. And so he addressed it, even though he probably didn't want to. He addressed it for that. He called his two dear friends to unite together again in the Lord. Now, let's take a little closer look at it. So look at verse 2 again. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Okay, that word entreat in the ESV, heartfelt, right? This is not the same thing as Paul saying, I command you, for example. This is the call of a friend to two dear friends. I entreat you and I entreat you. I'm not pointing at any particular one. Or other translations say, I urge you or I implore you or I plead with you and I plead with you. Paul cares deeply about each of these women. Second, what he calls these women to is what he has already called the whole church to before in the letter. He calls them, in this text is translated, to agree in the Lord, or to be of the same mind, or to think the same thing. That is the very same thing that was in the text that Sarah read that was addressed to the entire church earlier in the letter. Do you remember this from Philippians chapter 2? If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection in your hearts... Complete my joy by being of the same mind. It's the same thing he called the whole church to. Generally, before, now he's calling these two specific ladies to that. Now, now if you've ever had interpersonal issues within the church, or if you've ever witnessed this between other people, you'll know that coming back together again in unity this can be a really hard thing. I was thinking a lot about this this week. I was thinking about Paul, for example. Okay. And whether as he was trying to help these women through this issue, whether he may have been reminded of something that had happened 12 years earlier in his own life, just before he went to Philippi. It's a sad story. Even though God ultimately used it for good, but I'm thinking of the story of Paul and Barnabas. Have you ever thought about this? But they, they split up from one another just before he went to Philippi. That's why it's Paul and Silas in the jail in Philippi and not Paul and Barnabas. They could not come to agreement on an important practical matter of who to take with them on their second missionary journey. And it got so intense that they split up over it. Now, as you read the New Testament, it does seem like they remain friends. And Paul actually ends up with a good relationship with John Mark, the younger guy that this is all about. But there's no doubt that that breakup was a sad story in the New Testament and in Paul's life in particular. And now here in this letter, Paul is calling each of his dear sisters to something that he knows is hard. He does not take sides. 
they are each going to have to sacrifice for this to happen. He calls them to set aside their differences and to unite together again in the Lord and for the Lord. And one thing that I think shows just how hard Paul knew this would be is what he does in verse 3. You see verse 3? Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Paul knows this is a tough situation for these ladies. He also knows how important their unity was for them, for the church, for the gospel. And so what does he do? He calls on an unnamed, really close friend to help them. Now, we all want to know who that is, right? Who is that guy? Who is that lady? Seems like a guy. To cut to the chase, no one knows for sure. Okay? It probably was not Epaphroditus or Timothy since they were with Paul as he was writing the letter. It seems to be somebody who was already there in the city. My best guess is that this was Luke. Okay? Luke was very important in Philippi. It makes sense that he could have been in Philippi at this time, and Luke was a long-term, genuine, trusted friend of Paul's. But whether it was Luke or someone like Luke, a Luke-alike, I, I thought about that this morning, and I'm like, I'm like that is really lame, but I, I had it in my, okay. The main thing for us is to see that Paul called on a third person to get personally involved. Now, I imagine that if Paul could have been there himself, he would have been that person. But he could not be there. He kind of functions that way by sending the letter, but he knew he couldn't be there personally because he was under arrest. So he calls out a trusted friend to help them. And again, you'd have to think about this, that this would have been read publicly to the whole church. And even though he doesn't name the person for us, the true friend would have known who he was talking to. Paul was urging him to get involved, to be a peacemaker, to love these women like Paul loved them, and to help them be reunited in the Lord. Would that have been an easy thing to do? Would that have been something you would have wanted to do? I doubt it, but sometimes it's necessary for a third person to come alongside two other brothers or two other sisters and to help them be reunited. Now we come to the end of the verse, and I want, I want you to see how Paul closes the appeal. So the appeal part is at the beginning, and I want to look at how he closes the verse. Verse 3 again. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Okay, this is where you start to see just how important these women were to Paul. Yodia and Syntyche were women who labored side by side with him in the gospel. And again, that reminds us of the first chapter. What was Paul's vision for the whole church? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so I can hear that you're standing firm, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's the same, same language. These women had done that 
with Paul. He remembered it, and he wants them to remember it. We don't know the details of all that they did together, but the gospel had advanced because these two women had labored with Paul in the gospel. They had labored side by side with him. But that isn't the only reminder in this text. They hadn't just labored side by side with Paul. They had labored side by side with each other. But then something happened. And now they've lost their unity of heart, of mind, of shared passion for the gospel. And so first of all, Paul points everybody back to their shared past. Yodia, Syntyche, Clement, we don't know much about him. Luke, several others had all labored together to see this church get started. And God had done great things through them in the city of Philippi. The church was there because of these people. And Paul was calling on Luke or someone like him, help these women remember. Help them unite again in the Lord and for the Lord so we can do this again. But that's not the only thing he points them to. Look at verse 3 again. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, what is that last line a reminder of? This is Paul reminding them, not just of their shared past, but of their shared future. All those names are written in the book of life. Now, a lot could be said about the book of life. I think I looked at everything in the Bible about the book of life this week. It was really interesting. But I just want to highlight a few things about that book. One, you want your name in it. Throughout the Bible. For your name not to be found written in that book or for your name to be blotted out from that book, would be devastating. In fact, it would be damning. That's how this is talked about. That is what is behind Moses' words when he pleads with God to forgive Israel for the golden calf. He says, But now, Lord, please forgive their sin, and if not, then blot me out of your book. This is what's behind David's prayer in Psalm 69. For God to judge his persecutors and betrayers. Let them be erased from the book of life and not recorded with the righteous. That is what is behind the most sobering words maybe in the Bible in Revelation 20. At the final judgment, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. When you think of the book of life, you should think first of this. You want your name to be written in it. And if your name is written in that book, that should give you greater joy than just about anything else you could imagine. That should give you more joy than even if God did amazing things through your life. You should have more joy that your name's there. Do you know how I know that? Because 
Listen to what Jesus told his disciples. You remember in the Gospel of Luke, he had sent his disciples out on like a test mission. And they came back really excited about all that God had done through them. This is in Luke 10. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Jesus replied to them, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. However, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. When you think about the book, you want your name there. Two, the, the names that will be found in that book are the names of those who've put their full confidence in Christ for forgiveness and righteousness. No one gets their name in the book because they deserved it. You get your name in the book because God puts it there because of God's mercy to you. You get your name in the book because God opened your eyes to see, to love, and to trust in the Lamb who was slain. And then for the last thought about the book of life, the one that's most connected to this text, I'll say it this way. All the people whose names are in that book are going to live together forever. Everyone who's got their names in that book will live together forever. We will all share the very same future. We'll be there together in the new land forever. And I think that's especially what Paul's trying to remind them of, especially Yodia and Syntyche. He doesn't just remind them of their shared past. He reminds them of their shared future. Both of their names are written down in the same book. In fact, given how short of a time Paul was in Philippi, it seems likely that both of them came to Christ around the same time. I mean, for all we know, these two women could have been baptized together. And then they labored together side by side with Paul against serious opposition. And they saw God do great things. And then something happened. Something came between them. And Paul doesn't downplay it. And yet he knows that one day it won't matter like it matters today. One day they'll all be there in that glorious land together because all their names are written down in the book of life. And on that day, it won't matter like it matters today. And perhaps if we remembered that in our conflicts, or if they would have remembered that, perhaps that would help them to set aside their differences and to unite together again in the Lord and for the Lord. Now, as we bring these things to a close this morning, there's a lot more that I want to say than I have time to say. So I, w- I want to give just a couple reflections that hopefully will stir us to think throughout the week. Yeah. This text highlights at least these two big things. One, it highlights the value of women to the church and to the advance of the gospel. So I want to I think about that. These two women are representative of countless other women whom God has used to advance the gospel. 
to grow his church and to spread his glory. God is still doing this today. Sometimes in churches like ours, where we believe that God has reserved the role of pastor for men, there can be this idea that kind of sneaks in that women somehow are not all that significant or that women somehow are not that vital to the advance of the gospel. And I just want to say that is not true, nor is that reflective of the New Testament. Women were some of the most faithful early followers of Jesus. They stuck with Jesus when all the men had run. Women were the first witnesses and proclaimers of the resurrection. And throughout Paul's life, he points to one woman after another whom God used to minister to him and with him to other people. And I just want to say that our church is where it is today in large part due to the faithful gospel ministry of many, many godly women. Now, we are, of course, blessed with godly men. I like you men, too. But But in light of this text, I wanted to highlight the vital role women have played and continue to play in the work of the gospel here. From our first day until now, I have seen women in our church ministering in countless ways, caring for the sick, ministering in worship, helping to handle the finances, providing meals for those in need, teaching women and children publicly, discipling and counseling others, nurturing the faith of children in their homes, and often coming around side other kids and bringing them up in the Lord too. We have women in our church who are passionate for the advance of the gospel. We have women in our church who are more gifted in evangelism than maybe I am or others in our church. We have women who serve behind the scenes, happy to stay out of the spotlight, to meet needs, to help those who are more in the spotlight. We have women who give sacrificially of their time and of their money to the church, and we have many women who pray more than I know fervently for the health of our church and the advance of the gospel. A healthy church is one where both men and women labor side by side, for the advance of the gospel. And I praise God that though we are not a large church by any means, we have been blessed with many faithful women of God. This text highlights the value of women to the church and the advance of the gospel. And the text also highlights the importance of unity in the church to the advance of the gospel. It's so important that Paul actually brought it up in a very uncomfortable way. Though we don't have time to develop this today, I I do want us to ask ourselves, is there anyone in this church family that I am currently not reconciled to? I want you to think about that. Is there anyone that I used to labor side by side with but who now, for whatever reason, I'm divided from. In line with this text, I urge you, don't let it go any longer. Now, by God's grace, I am not aware of any situation like this in our church. But that doesn't mean there isn't one or that there couldn't be. 
So there's a call in this text to each of us to pursue unity and peace with one another. Now, wherever there's disunity, there's a threat. There's a threat to the stability of the church and to the advance of the gospel. This text reminds us also that sometimes you may need a third person to come alongside you and a brother or you and a sister to help you unite again in the Lord. In fact, God may even want some of us to get involved in helping two struggling sisters or two struggling brothers reconcile. If God calls you to that, remember Jesus' words as you go into that with fear and trembling. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And then as a closing word to us all, if we find ourselves really struggling to reconcile, to forgive, to be united, I want to remind us to look most of all to our Lord Jesus. What is often needed when there's tension between two brothers or sisters is for one or both to do the hard thing of laying aside their rights for the good of the other person and the good of the gospel. Sometimes that can be especially painful. It can hurt to do that. Sometimes laying down your rights like that can almost feel like dying. If you feel that way today or sometime down the road, I want to point us all back to Jesus. Jesus is the only one who, who never did any wrong to anyone. And he willingly laid down his life for his brothers and sisters. He set aside his rights and went all the way to death for them, for us, for the person we have a hard time with. He did that to reconcile us to his father and to each other. He did that to give us an example to follow. He laid down his life for us first so that we might lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And we praise God for Jesus, and we can look to him. He knows what you're going through if you have a conflict. And he's there to help you. And the church is there to come alongside us so that we might together strive as one for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this short text that Paul probably did not want to write. But I thank you for how we can learn from it. And I pray, Lord, that you would preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace right here. Help us to remember all that you've done in the past for us and through us. And, and as we interact with each other, Lord, I pray that we will remember that by your mercy, our names are all written in the book of life. And we're going to share in your glory and your future that you have for us together forever. And I pray that you'll use these things to strengthen our bonds, that we might as a church move forward for the advance of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.